Very few companies manage to avoid stalls in revenue growth. These stalls are not attributable to the natural business cycle. Our guest's careful analysis reveals that the vast majority of such stalls are the direct result of strategic choices made by the corporate leaders. In short, stoppages in growth are almost always avoidable. This extensively researched book analyzes the growth experiences of more than 600 Fortune 100 companies over the past 50 years to identify wide growth stalls and to discover how to rectify a stall in progress or even better, avoid one. Board members and executives in companies of all sizes will find this book a practical and essential resource. Our guest investigated the incidents and consequences of growth stalls in major corporations and then probed for the root causes. The study includes a selection of practices for articulating and monitoring strategic assumptions and concludes with a self-test built around 50 red flag warning signs of impending growth stalls. Just a little hint, a little touch of what's to come, the top four reasons a firm may stall include premium position captivity, innovation management breakdown, premature core abandonment, and talent shortfall. It is a pleasure to welcome back our recent guest in the Clayton Christensen tribute series, friend of the show, and author of the magnificent book, Over My Shoulder There, Stall Points, Most Companies Stop Growing, Yours Doesn't Have To. Derek Van Beaver, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Aiden, and for that kind introduction. It's such a great book. And I was telling you, I read it years ago, and it didn't make as much sense to me then. And that was just a lack of experience, because I've read so much since then, and I've seen so much in the business world. And I think, Derek, it's more applicable today than it ever was before. I, I don't know what your sense of it is. You must have seen how applicable it is today. Thank you for that. We published the book in 2008, so it's got some age on it. But uh, you caused me to reread it uh, in getting ready for this show. And what what jumped out at me, in addition to the fact that I think I think the findings are still as relevant as they ever were, um, was the voice of service that is um, kind of shot throughout this book. Uh, we, we published this book as one of the um, deliverables for the members of our corporate strategy board, which uh, and we can go into later uh, how the company that uh, I helped to found and grow um, uh, produced this kind of work. But we produced this for the strategists whom we referred to as our members. And it really does have a voice of service. Like we're, we're honestly, you know, the, the subtitle, most companies stop growing, yours doesn't have to. We're, we're really trying to help people to see past the stumbling blocks that typically cause companies to stall in their growth and trying to help them to see a little bit farther down the road than they might otherwise. Seeing as you mentioned it there, let's mention the business that you have to found because it, it was interesting. And then your departure, we discussed that into HBS and how you got into teaching, etc. But what was the what was the, the goal of that company? And then how did you get to where you are today? So I spent the bulk of my career in Washington, D.C., um, working with uh, the founder 
of our company, a man named David Bradley. And uh, he and I um, uh, uh, founded and grew two um, syndicated research companies. One of them was, is called the Advisory Board Company, the other uh, Corporate Executive Board. And the theory behind these companies was that executives who share a function or who operate in an industry uh, share more in common with each other than they often recognize. So for example, um, in the corporate executive board, our first membership group was a corporate leadership council for heads of HR. And globally, heads of HR have been on kind of a shared journey as they've moved from a folding seat at the executive table to being really critical in helping to chart and execute uh, company growth ambitions. Uh, the second membership we created was this group called the Corporate Strategy Board. Uh, I guess at its peak, we had about 400 or 450 heads of strategy from big companies around the world, across industries around the world. Um, they would, uh, we would think of them as members. So they would subscribe on an ongoing basis to our work. And one of the biggest questions always facing the head of strategy is, um, how can I help to uh, both engineer and then safeguard our company's growth path. So this study, which came to us from one of our members, HP, um, was just absolutely uh, right in the wheelhouse of heads of strategy. And the, the work and our discussion of the work um, generated uh, tons of animated discussion for years uh, as our members learned about and then digested and then applied the lessons in the study. You got there ahead of me, which was that origin point, the HP study, because that was really interesting origin point and just shows you the level and the depth of studies that you did. And this will help us also describe what is a stall point. This is going to test um, the memories of your listeners and viewers, I guess. Um, so uh, we first, uh, this whole concept of stall points first came to our attention in the middle 1990s, I guess, uh, when we visited with a man named George Bodeway at Hewlett Packard. And, uh, your, uh, older listeners will recall that Hewlett Packard was at one time the very model of a high growth company. I mean, uh, you know, double digit, you know, 20% growth rates across 40 years. Hewlett Packard was at one time the absolute gold standard for growth. And George uh, had in the technology of the day, a set of overhead slides and he put them on a projector and started telling us a story. He said, we were sitting here um, thinking about the, what lies ahead for us. And I think they were at fortune, 14 at the time. And we, they said, so we wanted to figure out as we continue our growth path, um, how are we likely to compare to the current uh, firms who are at the very top of these league tables? And so here comes HP chugging along at 20% growth a year. And George realized as they started to hit the Fortune 10, the Fortune 5, the Fortune 1, that growth trajectory was tailing off to 10%, 4%, 2%. And he was like, huh, so you've got this, this, you know, seemingly, you know, uncontrollable force hitting a kind of a movable object. And, 
and it caused George to wonder, what is in store for us? What, what has the growth experience been of very large companies over time? So being technologists and engineers and scientists, they organized a huge initiative that they called the HP Growth Initiative. And they kind of parceled out to various firms different tasks. And ours was to look at the growth experience of the Fortune 100 companies across the preceding 50 years to try to figure out answers to some important questions. Um, how common is it for companies to stall in their growth? Um, what are the consequences of such stalls? Uh, to the extent that we can figure it out, what are some of the drivers of stalls? And then what do you do about it if you're facing an impending growth stall? So this was easily the most quantitatively complex, qualitatively engaged study we ever accomplished in this membership and maybe across our entire firm. And we just learned tons and tons about um, the dynamics of growth and what you can do as uh, an executive in a fast-growing firm to try to spot trouble before it hits you, you know, right in the face. So, yeah, that was that was the backstory. I'm going to, before we continue, because there's so, so much in the book, because of that amount of research that you did, and it, it's uncommon now to find a book with that much research. And it's so it's one of the reasons I found it so interesting. I, as you know, I quote you in my own book, I say many, many people do. I know our future guest, Paul Nunes, also quotes you in his book. Nadia Jeksenbaeva, also a guest on the show, quotes you in her book. And it was particularly the point where you talk about that, the, the unfortunate and cruelest aspect of a stall is by the time you realize it's happened, it's too late. And the recovery time then can be debilitating for an organization. And that was the biggest lesson I had. The way I kind of reframed it in, in my own work is that you need to build this capability before you need it, because by the time you need it, it's too late. We quoted George Bodeway in the book, and he had a, an iconic statement. He said, you know, all companies stumble, but the great companies recover and they all recover fast. And, and that is so true. You know, if, if, if you don't recover in the decade following your stall, uh, it's highly unlikely that you ever will. And you'll, you'll just revert to reduce to highly uninteresting rates of real growth for the rest of your existence until you're acquired or go bankrupt or taken private. Uh, it, it really is, um, an event that you can recover from. But you've got to be on it at the at the very beginning. And again, I just want to say this: this book is not just presenting the problem; it actually presents the problem, and then how to prevent it, and how to actually minimize it, etc. Including if you're in free fall as well. And th so it's so in depth, and we'll we'll hopefully get to the, some of that today, Derek. But there's a question you po you pose at the very start of the book. And I'm going to share the diagram that you pose here, because this was something I'm sure on the keynote sequence that you did at the time, the series of keynotes that you gave that you used to share. So the question is, for those who are only listening to us, do you think there's any absolute limit, theoretical or empirical, to how large a company can grow? Yeah. When we were teaching this material to our members, we would start with this picture that you're sharing and with this discussion and, um, you know, ask folks to take sides. Um, and so you see on the left-hand side, 
the kind of an asymptotic curve to growth where it looks like there's something pushing some cloud layer or something pushing down on it. On the other side, um, unbroken growth uh, going on into the future. And uh, it's a simple question. You'll, you'll find schools of thought within um, uh, academia, for example, within the management literature, where you've got, um, you know, certainly a body of uh, scholars who say um, at some point, the managerial complexity of trying to continue growing, or as, you know, Clay would observe, the difficulty of allocating resource to continued growth will cause this, this sort of asymptotic curve. On the other side, people will say there is no law, there is no theoretical um, requirement that companies stop growing. So while we may have never have seen the company that hasn't you know, grown to the sky, there's nothing that would prevent that. And what's really interesting is when you look at, at corporate growth history across a century, you actually see both of these principles in evidence. You see you know, great you know, vertical growth paths of high-flying companies, RCA, General Electric, HP, uh, for its own sake. And then you see this flattening that seems to occur over time as well. Yeah, here you go. This, I mean, this was this was the most complex assignment we ever gave our um, uh, uh, graphics department to try to uh, render all of this. <laughs> I'll, I'll just maybe, Derek, just maybe sh share that I've I've changed slides for those people who are only listening here, and it's like it's, there's a graph, and it's like we've thrown a load of spaghetti on the wall, and there's a sense in there that there's a, as you, you talk about it, like a thicket or a cloud or downward force in this diagram. Maybe you'll describe that for those people who are only listening to us and then in more detail for those who are watching us. So what we're looking at here is an exhibit of 50 large companies across the uh, 20th century. So, um, the growth rates year on year of those companies. And so it's a line graph. And you see uh, two patterns if you step back from the exhibit. One, you see companies that are um, growing almost vertically, um, sort of entering the 20th century. Uh, you see RCA uh, growing like a weed in the 1920s, straight up like a rocket. Um, but what's interesting is that the companies do all tend to asymptote into uh, what we called a cloud layer. So regardless of any individual company's rate of growth, you do see those growth rates flattening so that ultimately there is an upper bound to the growth experience of these firms. And what we found was that in fact, um, while, while you do see that, that general flattening, the, the rate at which that flattening occurs has itself been growing over uh, time. And so what we concluded from this was <clears throat> we've, we've been getting better and better at growing bigger and bigger over the, the period over which we have data, the 20th century. Um, but we are still seeing companies um, ultimately fall victim or prey to some upper bound on growth. It keeps getting redefined but you, you do see like the, the top of a cloud layer uh, forming across the century. I've learned that just like a company stalled, so do people's attention spans, Derek. And uh, 
I'm very wary that some people won't stay with us for the whole show. They might have the best intentions in the world, but a kid will walk in or they'll have to drop somebody to a school soccer match or something like that, and they won't get back to us. So I thought we should put this up front, the useful concept of a stall point. So an organization can at least, or an individual that's a consultant, can get their head around the language that you're talking about here. So again, for those who are watching us, you'll benefit from the slides that Derek has shared with us. You, you, meant, you mentioned the uh, sheer complexity of this study. When we agreed to take this on as part of HP's initiative, um, we had to do a couple of things. First, we had to actually define, if you're talking about stall points, what is a stall point? And so um, we very carefully cataloged um, uh, uh, the revenue growth of every firm that had ever been in the Fortune 100 since the Fortune 100 was the category was invented in like 1950. And we went back in time to capture the revenue growth of every firm in that sample across the period prior to 1955, I think. And then every year after that. So we had like 25,000 data points ultimately of um, individual instances of revenue achievement of each of those 600 firms across a uh, hundred years. And uh, then we had to figure out, okay, what is, what is the turning point? What is the point at which we want to focus our attention? And so we invented, I guess, this concept of a stall point. And so what we say here is that this is the uh, year in which the growth rate of the company turns most significantly. So we did 10-year rolling average growth rates prior to each year in the sample, 10-year <laughs> rolling growth rates at, in, for every year after each point in the sample. And we were looking for where is the largest delta, what we call the stall delta between those two 10-year averages. So you get a sense, by the way, we were doing this work in the late 90s. We had a souped up PC that we had all this CompuSat data loaded on. And Seth Vary, who was the manager of the project, at some point refused to turn it off at night because he was afraid that it wouldn't turn back on in the morning. So we, <laughs> we kept this baby humming for a, quite a long time as we did the study. But we have here on, on the slide an example of the BF Goodrich company where we looked at, um, uh, again, you've got a uh, 10-year trace of data. We're looking at the data decade from 1974 to 1984. We've got the 10-year rolling average growth rate for each year prior to the stall year, 10-year rolling average for each year after. And we spot 1979 as the year in which the delta between the 10 prior years and the 10 succeeding years is greatest at kind of 9%. And so for each company in our sample that did stall, we identified a point in time that we had called the stall point. And, you know, there, it wasn't like, you know, there would have been some electric shock that management experienced in that year um, or that they would necessarily have spotted that particular year as the, you know, their stall year. But it would have been a time when an alert manager in the firm would have said, oh, there's something going on here that we should be concerned about. And so 
with that with this construct of the stall point, we were then able to dig in and to try to understand both the consequences as well as the causes of stalls. That's a lot, but that's that that's it, it was pretty complicated. But uh, you do a great job of the examples that you give, and they're not your normal examples, which I I found fascinating. Sometimes you know people regurgitate the same examples often. You probably using sometimes other books that other people have written as well. But I thought this next part was really important. You tell us that part of what may be going on here is that we are reaching the end of the growth of the formula for producing income growth that has characterized the recent past. To spot this, you say, we examined the substantial delinking of income growth rates from revenue growth rates that has been underway since the mid-1990s, with the former now accelerating away from the latter. So there's, again, a slide that, that you can speak to this, and, and this is quite an important one, because this was something that also you revisited later on with Clay in the work of what metrics you're using, RONA, for example. Maybe you'll unpack that for us. For the benefit of your listeners who uh, don't have video in front of them, the slide that you've just put up looks at the, um, for the Fortune 100 population, the um, revenue growth rate as contrasted to the income growth rate across the 50 years from 1955 to 2005. So you've got, you know, essentially two lines, revenue growth and income growth. And then we added a third line, which was revenue growth minus income growth. What you see over this period is for a long period stretch here from 1955 to 1985, revenue growth and income growth largely moved with each other. We called this the era of congruent growth rates. Then in the late 1980s and through the 1990s, you see what, um, again, your uh, more veteran listeners will recall as the era of re-engineering, you know, Michael Hammer, restructuring. And you start to see um, large firm managers getting better and better at squeezing uh, pennies of growth out of dollars of revenue, which is, you know, of course, their job. It's not like it's anyone's, you know, anyone's blaming them for that in particular. But you see income growth um, continuing to grow smartly and revenue growth largely leveling off. Now, this this concerned us because that game of squeezing pennies and pennies of income out of a dollar of revenue can only last so long, right? And so. Um, as we entered now, I guess this, this slide ends at 2005. My company um, uh, revisited this in 2015, and the same pattern held. We asked ourselves, how long can this pattern hold where we're just squeezing pennies of income out of revenue without growing the top line? That, by the way, is one of the reasons that we organized this study, stall points, around revenue growth. You know, we our, our belief is you can kind of, you can manage income growth. Um, you can't buy revenue over the long term. So a long-term trace of revenue growth, we believe, is a, a really authentic indicator of company health. I thought a really important thing that many companies will will be victims of is that because they jettison off perhaps R&D spending, or even as we see at the moment, there's this whole kind of let go of swathes of employees in order to maintain your stock price. 
that it reminded me when I was reading this next paragraph that I'm going to quote of the series we did with Clay, where, for example, Scott D. Anthony talked about how companies will often experience a growth. So uh, the way I, I kind of thought about it, I was telling you, I'm writing an article called The Rise Before the Stall that associates with with your book. And this art, this quote, I thought really spoke to it. You said, stalling companies give little warning, revenue and margin performance surrounding stall. The evidence suggests that financial model approaches to predicting impending revenue problems seriously miss the deeper drivers of stalls, both in the competitive environment and in management actions. And that's why you have this kind of suddenly, oh my God, where did that come from? from organizations, because this is very common to organizations. Yes, the, these, are, these are inferences that we're drawing from the data, but we think, we think that this is correct. And I, you and I talked about this um, uh, before the, the uh, session. Um, we, we looked at, for the companies that stalled, we looked at both um, uh, revenue growth prior to the stall, as well as income growth prior to the stall. And the truth was that that there were no markers um, visible to the outside world that would suggest that a stall is impending. So, you know, financial analysts are always looking for what what is the tell that a company's fortunes are turning, and it's it's very hard to tell externally. Uh, in fact, as we said, as you said, most companies accelerate into a stall, um, but also. Uh, the, that fact makes us believe that stalls are also difficult to predict for managers, that they come as a surprise to company management themselves. And they, they, um, they kind of latch on more ferociously than they would expect. Uh, you know, we, we talked about, uh, George Stalk, uh, friend of ours who wrote the book Competing Against Time, you know, some years ago now, uh, said, uh, I, we had this quote, the world tends to come at you quicker than you think, and you have to respond faster than you imagined. Th that was true 20 years ago. It couldn't possibly be more true today. And so this, this be, being aware, and, and we'll get to this in a moment, but being aware of the assumptions that are underneath your strategy and the, um, the evanescence of those assumptions, the fragility of those assumptions, and, and being, you know, in Andy Grove's famous term, paranoid about whether or not those things are true, whether the, whether or not those things continue to be true. You know, we talked about stalls as it's it's not what you know that isn't so; it's what you know that's no longer so that can really get you into trouble. I love that, and we'll come back to assumptions because that's a core part of your work is to actually revisit your assumptions, don't take them for granted, etc. So we'll come back to that towards the end of the book when we start to look at solutions. But you you mentioned RCA. And RCA is a, a is a core element of your studies. And you said for 45% of the stall companies that you studied, revenue growth rates actually accelerated into the stalls. This is building on what we talked about. Only 42% experienced decreasing revenue growths before their stall year. The acceleration in revenue growth often takes the form of buying revenue, you tell us, through merger and acquisitions activity just before the stall, a pattern that has held across time. And you mentioned RCA in this in, in this realm. And it's an interesting case study because I, I'm what I'm hoping here 
is that we learn from the past because history has a, has a, a tendency to rhyme in the future. RCA was a remarkable enterprise founded by a legendary character. Uh, people refer to him as the general, David Sarnoff, who built uh, the RCA broadcasting empire, which encompassed an integrated empire that encompassed everything from um, artist acquisition through to recording, through to broadcasting. Um, an amazing growth story across the early 20th century. In the 1960s, his son, um, Robert, I think, um, took over the firm and in a, in a kind of tragic miscalculation, uh, led the company to conclude that the era of innovation in consumer electronics was over, that basically everything that could be invented had been invented. <clears throat> and so he turned the company to, um, uh, as you suggest, an acquisition program, trying to find markets in which um, uh, they could continue to grow. And so, he, you know, he led RCA to be one of the firms that famously challenged IBM for dominance in the mainframe uh, segment of the computer market. Um, uh, they tried to figure out other kind of service businesses they could get into uh, in the B2B space. And this at exactly, ironically, the time that, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are graduating from high school and, you know, going on to <clears throat> found, you know, businesses and business models and technologies and um, uh, approaches that were just uh, blindingly, blindingly successful, and RCA somehow just, just, just shifted its focus at exactly the time when they should have kept pressing on. And so it's stories like that, and and you know, not that he should have been superhuman, but there were enough signals in the environment that that assumption that they had that the era of innovation in consumer electronics was over, that assumption deserved to continually be tested because it ultimately proved their downfall. So before we, we start to look at what can an organization do to see the stall before it comes, or what to do if you're in free fall, and indeed how to organize as a leadership team in order to avoid assumptions creeping in. Let's share this next slide because this is a very, very crucial part of the research about the long term effects of stalls, because one of the things you mentioned is, it's like rocks, not gliders that suddenly comes upon people. And this slide also gives a lot of, lot of knowledge where people hopefully, Derek, as, as is the goal of your company to avoid these stalls in the first place. As you said at the beginning, Aiden, the, <clears throat> you know, if you had a few summary lines of this research, one of them would be almost all large companies stall. So when we looked at that population of 600 companies, of every company that had ever been in the Fortune 100 since the creation of the index, 87% of those companies had stalled in their growth at some point or some points um, over their history. Um, of those 87%, uh, roughly half of them uh, were able to recover to moderate or high growth. Uh, slightly more than half, 54%, continued uh, in slow or negative growth for the decade following their stall. For those companies that didn't recover quickly, as George suggested, 
Um, it was very unlikely that they would ever recover to meaningful growth again. So, you know, 87% of companies stall one or more times in their histories. Of those 87%, slightly over half stall to slow or negative growth. And of those, only 7% are ever able to, to recover to high real growth rates. And by high growth, we mean simply um, 6% above GNP. So um, this, this is the data that exemplifies George's comment that uh, all, all companies stumble. Not, they don't all stall, but they all stumble. Um, and the great companies recover and they all recover fast. You have a one in 14 chance. If you, don't, if you don't recover in the decade following your stall, the odds are stacked against you that you ever will. Well, here's the news so far. Most companies stall. The market cap implications are devastating. <laughs> It's very difficult to recover after a stall. But this makes you wonder, are we scaremongering, which the research shows we're not. And that's what I really wanted to share this book. I know, Derek, you did the work years ago, well over a decade ago, but it is getting faster. The speed of change, the half-life of business models and skill sets of leadership teams are getting smaller and smaller. So therefore, the question comes, what should an executive do what does a business manager do? What, if, what should you do if you're the owner of a business or a CEO of a business or a leader to avoid or anticipate a stall? What we did after we did the quantitative analysis to figure out the um, costs and consequences of stalls, we took 50 of those stall companies across a range of industries and across a range of years and did bottoms up research to try to understand um, why they stalled. And so we built inductively this, you know, incredibly uh, <laughs> complicated uh, uh, root cause chart of kind of 42 um, discrete drivers of stalls that we spotted in these stories. And then we um, aggregated them up into the major categories that I think you want to talk about. And what um, the, I think the, one of the biggest findings that we that we discovered, as you suggested when we started out here, was that most stalls are uh, within uh, a company's or management team's control. There, there are some things that happen, you know, regulatory, um, uh, you know, get, getting blindsided by some regulatory move or being caught in some economic downturn that you just can't possibly recover from. But that, that ends up being a relatively small factor in the overall picture. And in fact, um, as you look across um, the controllable factors for stalls, there are four big ones that account for more than half of all stall, of, of all stall points. And they are, as you suggested, premium captivity. So the failure or inability to respond to the advent of a low-cost competitor or changing customer needs. Students of Clay's work uh, will understand why he and I connected over this particular category. It's the largest category by far. Uh, innovation breakdown, so a failure to achieve um, desired returns or required returns on uh, investments in new product and business development. So that's about 13%. Uh, premature core abandonment. This is this is cruel and, and kind of goes to the work that Chris, Chris Zook has done for so long at Bain, where he suggests there is more in the core and yet you see companies that step away from their core businesses just as others are exploiting them. RCA, 
interesting uh, example there. And then finally, talent bench shortfall. Some uh, either systematic lack of adequate leadership and staff with skills required uh, for growth, or in some cases, just a, a, a catastrophic um, uh, uh, disappearance of a key leader, perhaps Walt Disney in the history of the Disney company, or Mr. Goizueta uh, in the history of Coca-Cola. So some irreplaceable key person whom, whom it takes time then to groom a successor for. But those big four causes, premium captivity, innovation breakdown, premature core abandonment, talent bench shortfall, those are the ones that we want to focus managers' attention on. These are the, these are the ones that are most likely to come and get you. I thought it was really interesting that when you wrote the book, you mentioned, for example, geopolitical factors like war, like we didn't have to deal with that. And I was like, kind of going, boy, do we have to deal with that now and the complexity of the world and the pandemic, all those kind of things, because we hadn't seen them in in decades on the planet. And then they came in. But but still, I think that's why I really wanted to share the book today is because the factors are still strategic. And I love, I'm going to leave that slide up on the screen, Derek. I'm going to encourage people to watch this episode as well, because the slides are very, very useful. I'd love to go through them, Derek, the, the big four, and dig in a little bit deeper. You mentioned Clay, for example, and the, the becoming captive to your best customers. But I loved how you unpack that and the examples you give as well. So feel free to describe these any way you want at high level and hopefully our audience will even get a better idea of what you're talking about here. We talk about some epic um, corporate battles in the premium captivity chapter of the book. Uh, one of them is the battle between Caterpillar and Komatsu. And uh, Caterpillar stalled in 1975. We went back to try to understand what was going on at the time. And it was classic innovators dilemma uh, material. So you have you have Caterpillar at the time that's being um, attacked from the low end by uh, its rival Komatsu. And the chairman of Caterpillar at the time uh, was quoted, unfortunately for him, as, as saying, um, you know, Komatsu prices their products at least 10% below ours, which tells you what they think of their quality. We, we kind of saw a pattern repeat over and over again. And in fact, in the first conversation I ever had with Clay, I talked about this pattern that we spotted that we called uh, the three-part uh, dance step of disdain, denial, and rationalization. So when an incumbent sees a low-end uh, competitor on the march and dismisses them, chooses to ignore them, uh, those three factors, first, they express disdain for their products, Second, they deny that there could be anything to see there, any risk to them. And third, they rationalize, okay, well, you know, they've gotten this far, but they won't get any farther. Caterpillar, unfortunately for it, um, expressed perfectly that cycle of disdain, denial, and rationalization. You know, another, another study that we, you know, we published an, an HBR article um, called When Growth Stalls, uh, at the time that we published the book, and we led with the story of Levi Strauss, which again, your your longer lived listeners will recall, was at one point, I mean, absolutely dominant in the market for blue jeans. And Levi got hit from above 
and from below. So they, they completely missed the, um, the rise of, uh, sort of low end competitors, store brand competitors. So every, you know, discount store started to develop its own, um, uh, brand of jeans. So coming up underneath the gap where, which was Levi's principal distribution point, um, developed gap brand jeans, which, um, started to, to eat into Levi's from the bottom. And then, uh, again, this is a little bit antique, but you'll recall all of the designer brands, Gloria Vanderbilt and, and her peers coming in on top of Levi's Strauss with their own alternatives to Levi's. And Levi's just got completely squeezed and went from a position of imagining that they owned this market to um, uh, almost having their existence, their continued existence threatened. So again, they got they got so attached to their premium position that they weren't able to respond at the low end. And when they kind of showed that um, lack of ability to respond, they got hammered from the uh, uh, high end as well. So that, I mean, and we tell, we tell these stories um, uh, throughout. And we also talk about how it is that you can get stuck and unstuck. So students of disruption theory will absolutely know that, you know, we, we talk about, you know, what are the performance measures that you're using to judge how well you're doing in the marketplace? Um, are you looking at market share in addition to gross margin and other uh, metrics that tend to drive you up the sustaining trajectory? Um, and uh, how well are you, um, how, how well are you continuing to track how important you are to your customers? What, what, what is the psychology taking place in the customer universe? And are they, are their needs evolving in ways that you're not keeping up with? It's super you know, fundamental for the strategist and for strategy. I think that's a good way to actually go through these rather than just list them. Maybe we'll take them and then kind of go, well, what can you do about that? What can you do that about that as a, as a management team? Because it'll probably keep it more interesting for, for our audience as well. This one about the captive to your customers, to your best customers is, is a really difficult one. We, many of us have in on listeners to this show and myself included have seen this firsthand. I worked in media, Derek, and where the, your top customers suddenly started demanding different things and they actually had cheaper options where in media they didn't have to buy radio advertising anymore or newspaper advertising they could go on social media platforms with global reach with absolute unbelievable targeting facilities and it changed the game and everybody was caught kind of oh oh didn't see that coming as quickly as it did but there was always these people inside the organization these positive cassandras as andy grove would call us and they were the people saying, hey, this is coming. And I'd love you to give your advice for those people. How can they get a voice into the organization to say, this is happening? I'm seeing signals of it all over the place. But as you mentioned, there's this denial and disdain from leadership. So Der Derek has been very, very kind to send me the original deck that he used for giving keynotes and presenting these findings when the book launched. And I'm sharing on the screen here red flags. So these are the red flag section. Now there's m many, many in the book, but these are some of the top 10. So maybe we'll, we'll hover between these and the top four reasons for stalls, Derek. If I think 
a stall is coming. What can I do to, you know, gather attention, to focus attention on this? We thought about that a lot because uh, in the first instance, it was very common when we looked at the histories of company stalls. It was very common, in fact, almost universally <laughs> present, that when you really dug into the history, there was someone or some set of voices that were registering concern, but they weren't able to mobilize that concern into action. So we thought about how can we help people do that? And so we sat the team down at the end of our research and said, now that we've looked at all of these companies exhaustively, inductively from the bottom up, what would what are the signals that management might have been able to see that a stall was afoot, that there was something wrong? And so we called these red flags. We said, what red flags might management have seen that would have caused them to, to believe that they needed to react in some ways? And so we identified 50 of these ultimately uh, across strategy, finance, HR, operations, marketing, and uh, created a little test that's, that's in our book where we invited managers to think of each of these 50 factors and then uh, register whether there was uh, they had substantial concern about this or moderate concern or no concern. And this was cool because you could then administer that instrument to the executive team and uh, you could see kind of, okay, where does the CEO see things that the rest of them don't or vice versa? Where's the rest of the team worried that the CEO seems not to be focused on? And importantly, you could administer the instrument to the senior executive team and then to, say, uh, the group of high potentials in the firm who are out at the coalface. They're out every day talking to customers. They're much more focused on change in the marketplace, much more focused on changes in technology, and then compare the responses of those two populations. This was super, super eye-opening for our members. And the slide you're showing here, when we launched the book, we actually assisted our members in administering this test to themselves. And so you're showing here the results that we um, uh, tabulated of how 300 different management teams ranked the concerns that we spotted. Number one um, of, all the of all 50 was identified here as, key customers are increasingly unwilling to pay a premium for our brand reputation or for superior performance. So students of disruption will spot this and say, ah, here's an instance where we have somehow over-innovated, we've somehow continued up the sustaining trajectory and we're asking for more money, we're asking for more commitment than our key customers are willing to give us. And either you get frustrated at the customers and say, oh, you know, how could they miss how great we are? Or you step back and go, wow, how have we overshot what the market needs? And, and you know, the phenomenon of overshoot is right at the, the, the bullseye at the center of the disruption model. So that that's like a, a really interesting way to organize a conversation in the firm 
around how have we fallen out of step with what our customers desire. This was super helpful. This, when I mentioned at the beginning that I was, you know, not, I, I was, I was struck by how service oriented this whole project was. This, this was one of the key elements of service. And, and we supported um, our members in kind of really hashing through what are the implications for us of these findings. I found that was a huge thing about this book and why it's quoted so widely in the innovation literature is because you did the hard work. It was kind of like Clay with the innovator's dilemma. This was your version of that, doing all that work. His was this drives, yours was all these Fortune 100 companies. But that gave us, as as people working in innovation, it gave us, look, it's not us saying it, it's those guys out there. And And that's also a part of this. This is one of the things you suggest is that having studies like this and having papers like, for example, your, your paper as well, it's the HBS paper, HBR paper that I'll, I'll link to for this, why, when a company stalls, why a company stalls. I'm going to share that as well, a link to that. That's a really good read for those people who have a HBR subscription. Really good read. Uh, but I also highly recommend the book because the book will spark so many ideas for people as well, where you'll kind of go, that's exactly what's happening to us. And I felt that piece of service was really important. And it's also something that you recommend for innovators within organizations is to share these pieces of information throughout the organization. Thank you for linking. I think, I think that that HBR article exists outside the paywall, I think. Um, but it was, we were uh, guided in that by uh, uh, our editor at HBR, Julia Kirby, who did a wonderful job of condensing a several hundred page book down into a few pages of key findings. And so uh, I would really welcome your listeners to pick that up. It's, it's much easier than the book to digest and really gives you a sense of is, you know, is life long enough for me to go buy this book and read it? <laughs> well, that's very humble of you, man. I, I, I've been trying to help people get the book out there as well. <laughs> um, so it's with Yale University Press. They're going to kill you for that, man. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have joked that um, when I first started working with Clay, I said, you know, we've both published books on growth, but one of us has sold uh, a few more copies than the other. <laughs> well, I, I enjoyed both. I have to tell you that I'm a total nerd, though. And being a nerd, I'm going to jump back to the other slide as well. So back to the big four. This one will be of absolute gold to our audience. This is the innovation, innovation management breakdown, because many of our listeners are working in this realm and to know what can happen and to for example i'll just mention one jumping ahead a little bit is if the company decides to use the same funding mechanisms for r&d that they do for propping up the, the company's growth you're in trouble but over to you to unpack what this one's about innovation breakdown uh it's this is again another uh, complicated um category that has a number of root causes uh, related to management of R&D or how um, R&D conflicts, R&D management policy conflicts with uh, current core businesses. But we talk about here two companies that I think are really iconic in terms of what they represent. One, uh, the 3M company. Um, 3M had a a really interesting policy across its early years. It was largely a B2B company. 
And they they had a policy that that they referred to internally as make a little, sell a little. So they would at they had their central R and D labs, which would identify a need in the marketplace. They would constantly be testing to see is this a need for which a market exists. And little by little, they would step out as they made their investments into uh, new categories. And anyone who knows 3M knows they have their their businesses are splashed out across a large variety of, of sectors. Um, in the early 70s, they decentralized R&D. So they took funding away from the central R&D labs and uh, allocated it to the business units and your listeners will not be surprised to learn what happened at that point, right? So as they, you know, decentralized R&D, what you found was that the funding for R&D started to be reallocated from discovery of new uh, opportunities, new markets, new opportunities for growth to sustaining innovations within each of the business units which received the funding. So you, you had this kind of curtailed investment at the center and uh, increased but redirected investment towards simply building on the uh, foundations that they'd already laid. This ended up um, really causing a problem for 3M in terms of overall corporate growth, as it does for you know every company that's trying to get this balance right between centralized discovery and decentralized exploitation. Um, and so 3M ultimately had to Refederate those R and D funds to be able to um, uh, pick up growth again. The other one, the other story here that's really interesting is Rubbermaid. I mean, Rubbermaid, um, Rubbermaid essentially owned the you know uh, rubberized tote storage container uh, segment of the marketplace, and uh, we called this an example of over innovation because. They poured so much engineering and so much R&D into their products. I think Rubbermaid products at some point uh, came in 426 distinct colors, including 19 shades of black. And um, so Rubbermaid kept innovating on these products and pushing them out to their distribution until uh, famously one very big customer, Walmart, said, enough. Um, you know, what I need from you is not the 20th shade of black, I need you to reduce your cost because my customers are are not able to purchase your products. You're charging too much, right? Classic red flag. Um, this opened the door for uh, a number of lower cost competitors, including Sterilite, which is now, I think, um, ubiquitous in uh, the discount uh, hardware and home goods chains, uh, including Sterilite, to get its first foothold and it was because Rubbermaid management just wasn't listening to the, uh, you know, yelps of concern from their major customer um, that caused them to just uh, break down in terms of what they were producing and what the market was demanding. And so, you know, we talk about, so what can you do to make sure that you're not falling into this trap and um, rebuilding the links? Between your marketing and your R and D functions, so that um, you know you make sure that you're focused on the needs of the market is super important, and um, you know listening to the customers when they say, 
you know, this latest feature that you've developed is something uninteresting to me. You're charging too much. You know, your salespeople come back and say, you know, the customers, you know, they just don't get it. They, you know, they're not, they're not buying what we're selling. That ends up always being a red flag, not for the customers, but for the producers. And yet we, we don't listen. We, we keep, we keep pushing on our existing strategy without taking that feedback into account as we grow or not. Yeah. Still so prevalent. We, we all do it in every aspect of life. We all do it. And this goes back to then the, the culture of disdain or denial as well that happens as well. But let's, let's jump to the next one. Um, which again, I, I found really interesting from the perspective of it's still out there so much. But what I found most interesting about this, just to tee you up, is this is premature core abandonment. And you mentioned RCA earlier on, but that that can s sometimes come, the way I kind of thought about it was an almost corporate boredom with their current core, instead of actually kind of really optimizing it or as as your colleague in HBS would say, Michael Tushman, exploit and explore. In, instead of exploiting what you currently have, they abandon it just at that point when it's just about to take off, as you mentioned with RCA. I'd love you to share this one because this one for me was a bit of a shock, including you can over-innovate in that you can over-invest or you can invest too widely in too many options that are way away from your core. Yeah, this is really interesting. You, you, when you sent me back to stall points, I was thinking about premature core abandonment in particular. And so, as you say, uh, we're sort of, we define this as a failure to exploit growth opportunities in the existing core business. I talked about RCA and their uh, stall point in the late 60s. Kmart as well. Um, uh, came to a similar conclusion that discount retailing um, had essentially uh, hit its peak and they went on a really undisciplined run of um, unrelated diversification efforts at the very same time that Walmart was innovating in a variety of ways um, with cross-stocking, all kinds of logistics innovation to increase by a point or two the margin in their logistics operations, which is a huge deal in discount retailing. So at the one you've got, we've got Walmart kind of beavering away, figuring out how do we improve this business? You've got Kmart splashing its effort out across a wide variety of unrelated efforts. I think furs, cafeterias, all, all kinds of you know, weird things that they were doing with their, with their, uh, earnings. And, um, of course, Kmart, its former parent Sears, now a fraction of their, I mean, Sears is utter, is largely non-existent. I guess Kmart still exists, but Walmart came in and, and showed what the future of that category was. The reason that I was thinking about this as being so relevant right now is, um, this is, the angle at which private equity approaches most of the portfolio companies that they acquire. So you'll, you won't see a private equity firm come in and say, gee, we should diversify away from the business <laughs> that you're in right now. What you'll typically see private equity do is come in, acquire a company and say, we're going to double down and make the hard operational decisions that you need to make so that you can 
um, achieve greater success in the business that I bought you for, right? And so one of the things that we talked about um, as a potential strategy for management teams who were thinking about straying away from their core business was to invite a venture capitalist into their boardroom. Uh, and you know, if, if there's one you can trust or if there's an, a banker that you've worked with closely who uh, has some track record with the company and you can actually you know, uh, uh, re reveal some aspects of strategy to and just say, what would you do in, in our situation? Would you double down here or would you diversify away? And I, I guarantee that the, you know, the play number one in the PE playbook is how do we make this existing business better? And that is such a great discipline and perspective for corporate managers to have. You mentioned, Derek, at the very start of the show, the book being of service, but also the company that you founded that's that's of service as well. The company that was acquired, congratulations to you as well that I might add. But one of the people you were serving was HR managers. And you mentioned at the top of the show how important it is for them to have a seat at the boardroom table today. It's not the case for, for many HR people, L&D people. They should because they are so important in the world the way it is today. But one of the things you talk about is talent bench shortfall. So this is one of the reasons for a stall that may surprise people. And again, I mentioned to you in the media industry, I saw this, that you had people who had got to the top of the ladder based on the way the wor world used to be. Now they found themselves there and they either pull up the ladder behind them to keep prevent being exposed or they tried to fake it and they didn't have the skill set. Now I say that with empathy as well, because I know a lot of that behavior is driven by fear of being found out and not having upskilled in time. But if anything tells us today, something that you identified again back in 2008 is more relevant than ever before in human existence with AI and ChatGPT, et cetera, the talent bench shortfall is a huge one. Of the big four causes of stalls, uh, talent bench shortfall is the uh, smallest, it's about 9% of stalls, but it's the one that's often most visible because as you say, we're, we're either dealing with a loss or with an absence. And so it's kind of obvious to everyone. So we, we talked about, um, we defined this, this cause as, you know, a lack of adequate leaders and staff with the key skill sets to execute the firm's growth strategy. Uh, 3M encountered this in that, in their move, uh, to add consumer businesses to their B2B portfolio. They had n no, you know, real understanding of consumer marketing inside the firm. And they had to acquire that in a hurry and belatedly. We tell the story of the Disney company in uh, this chapter of the book on talent bench shortfall. And in particular, what happened in the years after Walt Disney had passed from the scene and uh, leadership of the firm went to uh, Roy Disney, I think his cousin. Um, and the Disney company kind of fell into a, a really dark and depressing era where uh, there were labor labor strife with the animators, um, the 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 nine old men, the folks who had originally 
um, animated all of the classic movies, retired or moved on to other firms. There was even talk at one point uh, in the Disney board reportedly about outsourcing the uh, production of animation to other companies, just kind of, you know, syndicating other people's content. And uh, Michael Eisner came in and spotted this and said, you know, this, this is a tragedy. This, this threatens the very continued existence of this company. And he talked about how, what did he say? He said, he said, I think of the, the, the animators and the, the, creators of our characters as uh, existing in a talent a talent box at the center of this company. I can't do anything <clears throat> to help them create inside that box, but I can protect the box. And and that is what he did. He he um, over time he built a new a cool new headquarters to house the box. He um, raised the profile of animators. He uh, completely extinguished all of the <clears throat> labor strife that was going on, all of the uh, hard feelings. And, you know, that was a key move that he made in trying to bring back what was at the center of the firm. Hitachi uh, had a an epic stall in, as we say here, 1994. And in the years after, as they looked toward their centennial in 2010, they finally, finally installed their first non-industrial CEO, a man named Kazuo uh, Furukawa, to be head of the firm. But it took them a long time to shift from that well-worn path to the top to the way that the firm was shifting over time. I think that's a lesson that um, we can uh, really hold through to today. Um, we we uh, worked with our HR membership on the implications of this. And what we finally uh, came to was a kind of a rule of thumb. As you look at your senior executive leadership, you want to have a balance between sourcing internally and sourcing externally and make sure that you're keeping pace with the market. We said somewhere in the 10 to 30% of senior leaders should have been sourced from outside of the firm within the last several years so that you've got that constant um, refreshment of uh, perspective and uh, capability at the top of the firm. Firms that are, are way too insular um, are in danger of the kinds of stalls that we've seen. And firms that are way too um, uh, undisciplined in their hiring, way too diversified, also fail to build those deep uh, knowledge and skill sets. It's such an important one. I was thinking about the the aspect of neurodiversity there as well. That and and also, if you have a team of of people who don't know each other that well, there's research that's come out that says you prepare better for those meetings because it's not like oh Derek will have my back. He knows I was out last night or I was at the golf course. You don't cover me because we're not friends in that way or we haven't been through it the company so the company becomes more effective as well and on top of that you have the creativity that comes with neurodiversity assumptions was probably one of my favorite parts of the book i have to say and i was reminded of a quote attributed to mark twain kind of like what you said earlier on and i don't know if you know this one it says it ain't what you know it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble it's what you know 
for sure that just ain't so <laughs> and i was like kind of going that's what happens to organizations they figure out a way that's successful they organize the organization around that way that's successful for that kind of success the world changes and then so should their assumptions but they are so busy exploiting that they don't have time to reassess those assumptions that they've made and i thought that that was so interesting the part that you recognize that amidst all the data that so much of it comes down to this mental capability Aiden, this is this is so important this is this is the the absolute center of our um, of our findings and, and what we think is important for people to take on board from this research. And um, I'll tell you that y- you were kind enough to mention Seth Vary, who uh, was co-author with us on the HBR article and who was the research manager of the team. He, Seth was the one who wouldn't turn the PC off. And Seth came to find me and Matt one day at the elevator bank as we were leaving at the end of, of the day. And he said, I finally figured out why it is that companies stall. And we said, oh, well, great, tell us. And he said, um, it's because the things that they've known the longest um, or that they believe the most deeply have ceased to be true. And yet it's uncool to question them. And that is like so wise, right? It is the assumptions that the assumptions that are underneath our strategy around what our customers need, what our competitors are able to do, what technology enables for all of us. Um, when those assumptions become outdated, uh, it is very difficult for the senior team, which is deeply invested in those assumptions that you know they've often invented the strategy that rests on those assumptions that proceeds from those assumptions when those assumptions um are no longer true it becomes um career limiting to question them there's there's no way to to grasp to get a a handhold uh to be able to study those assumptions and so and and again to your theme that 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 this book written now whatever 15 years ago has has relevance currently we are all so busy and so distracted that we are, it's almost inevitable that we're going to run past the signals that would tell us, hey, slow down, take a look, you know, take a pause. Um, the instant, the incidences of management teams that are willing to do that are so rare. Um, and yet it is the key. If you, if, you know, most companies stop growing, yours doesn't have to. What do you have to do? to to safeguard that growth path is absolutely question yourself. Are the assumptions underneath our strategy still valid? And if not, how do we need to adapt our strategy to uh, uh, stay in pace with the evolving reality outside our four walls? And so we have a whole uh, chapter in our book around um, how can, how, how are companies currently articulating and then stress testing the assumptions underneath their strategies. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the, one of the most interesting ones and easiest to do is um, if you do have a cadre of high performers inside your company, high potential employees, um, actually, you know, tasking them with articulating what are the assumptions underneath our strategy? You've been here long enough. You're, 
you know, we've, we've marked you as somebody who's, you know, we've got a big investment in, um, write them down, you know, articulate for us. How do you see us behaving? What, what do we seem to believe about our customers or competitors or technology? Very often seems to me you can't find anywhere in a firm that those are documented in a careful way. And in our experience, it is almost always surprising on both sides to senior management as they read what the staff say seem to be our assumptions. And from the uh, high potential side of things, how um, when you sit down and actually catalog them, how dangerous some of those assumptions are in terms of the way the market is evolving. So just as a, as a basic hygiene function, um, we find that so important. And we've got some, I think we called it um, the core belief identification squad or something like that. We have a little practice in, in the book that you can adapt, you know, rip out and use um, uh, uh, to, to kind of get this underway. Um, a couple, couple of others that, that we looked at. Uh, there was something that uh, we called, I don't know that this was a great name for it, the, the pre-mortem strategic analysis. So this is a really good idea for like a management offsite where you take the senior leadership of the firm, break them into two groups, assign uh, some kind of scribe or, or you know, external uh, facilitator to each group, and you write two different articles such as would exist, you know, would appear in a business publication in the Wall Street Journal or, or whatever. Um, and one of them is, you know, our company moves from strength to strength and, you know, dominates our industry in five years. The other article is our company crashes and burns and in five years time, there's nothing left but a smoking hulk. And then you take those two articles that you've prepared uh, circulate them, share them with the other team, and look for what are the what are the factors that these stories of success and failure share in common. What are the touch points? What 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 does success or failure seem to turn on? Is it technology? Is it talent? Is it innovation? Is it um, the way that we serve customers? When you can identify the 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 points of correlation between the two stories, you then can say, ah, now we understand either what we have to protect or what we have to build. And it's, it's, I've assisted management teams in doing this. Um, uh, it's, it's great fun. Uh, the whole process is fun and the findings are super, super useful. So those are the kinds of things that we profile in the book, Aiden. There's so much in the book. Uh, we won't do it justice. We've touched on just a little tiny bit of it. The red flags in there, the self tests are in there. But one of the things I found so interesting was the just the mental aspects, the the soft so-called so soft skill aspects of this. Having the psychological safety to be able to talk about these things, raise them, talk about them without fear of any kind of punishment psychological or otherwise within the organization, Derek, I've, I found that so interesting. I have a, a very short little quote that I wanted to share before we sign off, but I wanted to maybe finish by just asking you your final message for audience. I'll, I'll do this in the meantime, when you're thinking about that. Um, and also where people can find you 
I'll ask you that now. Where can people find it to find out more about your work? We had you on earlier on talking about the the capitalist dilemma as well. I linked to that episode that was so well received by your audience. But where is the best place to find you, Derek? Well, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm uh, here at Harvard Business School. And so you can just Google my name or uh, dvanbeaver at hbs.edu. And I would love to hear from anyone. It, you know, uh, this this work was really a labor of love. And um, it, you know, the whole purpose behind creating this was to try to be of use to operating managers and leaders. And so anyone who's interested in um, understanding this better or um, applying it, or if anybody wants to replicate our methodology and see what they get, I'm super happy uh, to uh, be of any help that I can. If you're willing to take on that work, that is. <laughs> so I, I have a final quote, and then I'm going to hand over to you to close today's show, Derek. I, I loved this. I picked this one out because I, I thought it just speaks to anybody in any aspect of business, in life, in your in your marriage, in your partnership, whatever it might be. You say, you must continually articulate and stress test the assumptions underlying your strategy because it is the assumptions that you believe the most deeply or that you have held as true for the longest time that are likely to prove your undoing. You may think that you are currently doing this, but the odds are that you are not. And it is an oversight that you suffer at your peril. Goes for all aspects of life. I thought that was a lovely quote because it appeals to both the person and the leader or the executive in an organization. Derek, what's your final message for our audience? You know, every year in our classes here at HBS, we ask our students, um, why is it that managers and leaders in organizations are not more self-critical and um, the students year in and year out, you know, kind of puzzle with this question and they finally uh, come up with, you know, because we don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to seek out the truth because we're afraid what we might find. And so, you know, if you if you if you love your your business, you tend not to want to take a critical eye to it and, and really go as deep as we're talking about here. I think it's really just the opposite. If you love your business and the people in it and the mission that you've developed and the service that you provide, it's it's really not your responsibility particularly, but your opportunity to be able to understand how well am I continuing to connect with those that I seek to serve and how do I safeguard not only our franchise, but the people inside our organization by making sure that we're marking our capabilities and our beliefs to a market that is rapidly evolving. And we think it's a great opportunity to um, take work such as ours, work such as your profiling in your podcast, Aiden, and to, to really focus on what has brought uh, teams down in the past and how can we continue to extend that run of success into the future. Author of Stall Points. Most companies stop growing. Yours doesn't have to. Derek Van Beaver, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Aiden. Thank you.